You're listening to Henley Business Radio. So if, and you know all about rhythm, so if a podcast were a rhythm performance and you're performing it was a gig, how do you play the rhythm of a podcast? I play it pretty much like that, you know that diagram that you did for us with Slaves to the Rhythm, mm-hmm. which was, um, it was a like jumble a- of lines representing divergent chaos. Yeah. And I would just play randomly and instinctively and then get to some sort of theme that made me feel good in the moment at that point that seemed to suit the room and the people and then I'd improvise on that and then if I was really feeling clever and smart I'd probably even figure out a cadenza at the end just to go okay that's the end of the event almost like a improvised drum solo is that how an improvised drum solo goes? if it was an open-ended solo it would, it would go like that You'd start by searching for something, then you'd pick up on certain motifs and themes. And once you find those little hooks, you then explore those until you're bored or until the audience leaves. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then figure out a way to, uh, and then figure out, figure out a way to close in a way that shows people that, that you've finished. What I found out for years, I used to play drum solos because I love improvising and playing mm. solos. When I was playing in, in, in jazz gigs, I used to solo a lot, and then I'd often find that at the end of the solo, people would clap during the solo, but then at the end of the solo, there, there wouldn't really be that much applause. And I eventually figured out, uh, one of my mentors actually told me that you've got to make a um, discernible end with a flurry to sort of bookend the end of your solo, because then people are comfortable to clap. Otherwise, I think they're tramping on you. And did that make a difference? Made a huge difference, yeah. What I do now is I try and make a an ending and even have eye contact with people so they know okay so your body language shows that you're finished and that's a, that's a release then people can react interesting bit of drum psychology and that's the voice of Barry Fansale drummer for 20 years with the Johnny Clegg band South Africa's favorite band that's been involved from activism reframing Africa giving hope inspiration to people and welcome, Barry, to the Henny Business Radio podcast. It's great. Thanks, John. Good, Thanks. good to be here. We're the podcast for Henny Business School in Africa. And what this is about is trying to get interesting stories and understand from those stories things that can really help us in our own lives, in business and in life in general, drawing from very special people and their very special experiences. And I think you've just about to go or just come back from rehearsal haven't you yeah indeed we've been setting up a series of of shows which has been branded as the final journey tour Mm -hmm. so it's the final six months of public performance activity so we've set up a autobiography meets selection of songs audio visuals storytelling and a whole feast of music. That is a special show, and I'm, I'm very lucky to be able to go yeah. there tomorrow night. But what an interesting story you've got. I mean, it'll come out later. You're also an MBA student at, at Henley, and, but that's not the purpose of this podcast. We might cover that. But, but what's your story? Right? How did you start in drumming? Where did you come from? To the MBA point, you, absolutely, and, and it would be cool to talk about it mm-hmm. during the, the body of the podcast because I, I think that's been a major trigger of change for me much to do with your uh, mentoring input over the years. So right up front, I've got to say I'm very grateful for that. And, it's, and, and Hendy's a comfortable space for me now. It's a happy space. It's a good place to be. 
I started playing drums as a kid. I grew up in the, the southeast coast of South Africa, so, so Plettenberg Bay and Port Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. I started playing drums and I have, uh, when I was five or six, and I have no idea why. I just probably, for the same reasons you started wanting to fly planes. Mm. I, I actually don't have a, any clear-cut answer, and there were no particular events. I was just, I was just drawn to it when I was small. Uh, my parents supported me. I played drums in bands. Uh, I taught myself to play, learned drums from uh, listening to Rolling Stones and Beatles records, and managed to convince my folks to buy me a drum set. And that was that. That's how I started. I started playing in clubs and venues for money when I was 12. 12. Much to my parents' horror. Yeah. Uh, not not child labor. But <laughs> <laughs> no. I, make my own, I used to make very good pocket money playing drums uh, in bands where the, the average age would have been 18 or 20 and then I was the 12-year-old kid. You know? I never knew that. So you were <clears throat> semi-pro at the age of 12. Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. had a talent. I had a drive and a purpose that I couldn't even begin to argue with. I had no indecision about what I, what I had to do. So I was just driven to play this instrument and practice and engage with other musicians. So all I did was seek out the best opportunities in my area. It was totally passion-driven. It was no, there was no thought process at play. At that time, there was a very strict segregation system in place, and the best music happened in the, the so-called non-white areas of mm. uh, where I grew up. And so f- for me, as a, as a 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, it was never a question of legalities or race or culture. I, just, I was just like a guided missile to, to wherever the best music was. So uh, just for anyone listening who may be not South African in origin, yes. these are the years of apartheid when there was segregation, black, white communities lived separately. There were a range of laws to keep people apart from each other. But yeah. as a... 10, 11, 12-year-old, in spite of the pressure of the secret police and the police and the apartheid government, you just ignored all that and followed what was natural to you. Exactly, yeah. 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 So I, I used to literally go into, in, in musical terms, just um, jam. So that would be just getting into a room with other musicians, just playing for hours. I used to go into the townships in, in the boot of somebody's car, in one of my friend's cars. So one of my friend's parents would take me in to, to the to the township in a boot and I thought it was the most natural thing in the world because I thought well practically how else am I going to do this if mm. I sit in the back of the car we're probably going to get into trouble with the police so the most obvious thing to do would be to jump behind the back seat or get in the boot and I had marvelous marvelous hours and hours and hours of playing like that so learned a large part of my my skill set in in those years I'm thumb sucking now but I probably played 40 or 50 hours a week like that with different uh, musicians, you know, in garages, basements, whatever. And then that turned into professional engagements and backing cabaret and... Uh, How old are you by now? 14. Well, uh, this is an interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 12-year-old, you were bust into the townships, past the police, where you've been in trouble. And we got, into, we got into some interesting situations. How did your folks feel about that? My mom was hugely encouraging. My dad was sort of, I think he took the position what he didn't know he wouldn't argue with. But they were pretty encouraging. My mom was totally behind it. What she, a story. She, she couldn't see anything wrong. <laughs> really? So yeah. that's unusual too. Yeah. So that's a powerful influence on you. Absolutely. Your mother's yeah. support. Anyone else would have thought was extremely dangerous. 
Yeah. But you and she knew it wasn't so. Is that right? I think we just trusted our instincts. Mm. And um, also, also she knew all the people that I was playing with because they had come around to my house and mm. she interacted with them socially and she developed trust. So she knew that if I was in that group, nothing would happen. Right. And, and then from, from my side, I was totally welcomed into these neighborhoods. So because I was this kid that played drums and they could see was passionate and wanted to work hard, I was never on the receiving end of any reverse racism or anything like that. I was just totally welcomed all the time and protected. So it gave me a very good lens into the hypocrisies and the ridiculousness of apartheid. It must have been impossible for you to even begin to engage with apartheid after yeah. that because you've made connections on a real human level. Yeah. And if somebody were to try and tell you that black or white were different, better or worse, it yeah. would have just made no sense no, whatsoever. it made no sense to me at all. Mm. And then some, sometimes what would happen is I'd go with some of the black kids that I was playing with, and this was a bit later, we'd, we'd, we'd try and go to a restaurant in a, or a club mm. together and then we wouldn't be allowed in. And, you know, that just blew my mind i couldn't i couldn't understand so you could have gone in there yeah but your black yeah. friends wouldn't have been allowed to yeah there was a there was a handful of those kind of instances which i can mm. remember well and that it totally defied all logic for me that was me up to 14 15 16 i guess when i was about 15 i started playing with a um i was the only white member of, of a large band uh, called maiden voyage that that was qu quite a seminal group in in the eastern cape at that time and we used to back cabaret. We used to, mm. I, I used to go into the township and, and, and back cabaret at a particular hotel on a Sunday night. It was marvelous. They had this cabaret tradition, transplanted from Cape Town, actually, where every weekend there'd be a house band with different cabaret artists, normally from Cape Town, that used to come down to Port Elizabeth. And a guy called Tully Peterson picked up on me, who was a cabaret singer from Cape Town. He was fiercely proud of Cape Malay culture. And he was researching the Guma tradition and mm. Cape Malay choirs and such. And he instilled a, a work and a practice ethic in me. And so he was a big trigger for me um, in, in terms of focusing my resources on getting better in a, re, in a gradated way, because up to then it had all been random. So he encouraged me to take lessons, to read music, practice a lot, play with a bunch of different artists and basically just take care of business. So that was, he was a big turning point for me. So now you're how old? At this point, I was probably 16, 15 or 16. It's very interesting. There's a TED Talk by Ken Robinson, a very famous one, yeah. and a book that he's written. I think it's Epiphany. And he talks about creatives needing to find their medium in order to be fully creative. It right. sounds like you just fell into your medium. Yeah. So, so I want to move the conversation on a little bit more yeah. because I can see these phenomenal influences yeah. and I must say I feel a little guilty because there's musicians and drummers and creators out there yeah, yeah, yeah. who would like to know a lot more about that but let's just take through what happened to your career path now in okay. the bands you joined and short story was I went from I, I finished school I went to pursue the, the industry in Johannesburg which I perceived as the biggest industry in in my region J joined a band with a deal with EMI records moved to London didn't work out started formal music education for the first time. I Where did you go? I went to, a, at that point, fledgling school called Drum Tech in Ealing, mm. which subsequently grew into the biggest music school in Europe. I then got more and more certain that I needed to study formally in America in the discipline that I wanted to achieve. So I, I then went to, uh, to LA, and then from there came, came back here 
in 94. I came back specifically because it was the first democratic elections and the whole of South Africa opened up in terms of a touring industry, which, which wasn't possible during the cultural sanctions. Mm-hmm. And what a time that was. I mean, that was exciting. It felt dangerous. It felt transitional, didn't it? Yeah. And your music must have reflected that. I mean, yeah. How did your music fit into those times? And, and where did Johnny Clegg come into it from there? Johnny Clegg was, was somebody that, that I was very aware of. And actually, while I was a, while I was a student in L.A., Subuka had, were making a big pitch on the, U, on the mm. U.S. market, and they'd actually moved to L.A. So there was a lot of awareness about them. I didn't, I, I'd never met him. And when I came back to South Africa, I started touring with various acts like the Soweto String Quartet and a uh, great Zimbabwean uh, artist called Oliver Mtukudzi, and we'd be going around Europe every year. And I was on the same sort of orbit mm. as the Clegg Band. There was an opportunity to go and... Clegg had a band called Juluka, that he did a yeah. whole lot of business with. Tremendous band as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. with Johnny and yeah. Sipa. Yeah. They toured the world for about two and a half or three years. They achieved commercial success. Sipa then felt he wanted to go back to KwaZulu and farm, which he did. And Johnny then started Savuka, and then that was the, the most successful vehicle of all his, all his acts. And then when Savuka ended, I had just come back to South Africa, so it was, it was quite good timing. So what happened? Did he kind of call you up and say, hey, his, Barry, uh, what about actually, it? Or? Actually, Andy called me up. Who, Andy who, NSC guitarist, yeah. who you knew. He was a great guitarist. Yeah. yeah. As a very amateur guitarist myself, I, I just get blown away by listening to him. But he's yeah. fantastic African rhythm. Yeah. yeah, he's got a real deep understanding mm. of Zulu music and, mm. and especially Johnny's catalogue. So how does this work? Somebody calls you up and says, uh, hey, Barry, do they talk money? Do they talk what? I say, hey, you want to play with us? How's it go? It was literally a case of uh, he gave me some dates. There was a small pool of uh, session musicians in Johannesburg. And by the way, I know you were renowned as a session musician. Everyone said, now, Barry, he's a guy who would turn up totally prepared, totally organized, spotlessly on time, complete his gig, do it perfectly, walk away like the ultimate pro. Is, Is that right? Certainly well, is your reputation. I, I hope so, at least yeah. some of the time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm glad to <laughs> Enough hear. of the time to get away with it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That pool of, of, uh, of, of guys was, everybody knew each other. And mm. so Andy had just transitioned from Savuka to running Johnny's new band, which was now the Johnny Clegg Band. So shortly after that, he called me. Uh, and they, they were going to, it's an interesting story, they were going to Germany for two weeks. The drummer that they'd booked let them down. And so I had two days to, uh, to rehearse the whole repertoire, mm-hmm. which we did it in Johannesburg. And then the third rehearsal was supposed to be in Frankfurt the day of the first show. But when we got there, the sound company had been delayed. So um, we had no time for a sound check, never mind a rehearsal. So we basically got off the plane, went to the hotel. This is your first venue. gig with the band. Yeah, my no first sound gig. check, no rehearsal, no, well, on we had, stage. Well, we had two, sound che- we had two, re- two days rehearsal in Joburg. A flight and then no rehearsal. But the real sort of uh, top and tail period was supposed to be at the venue in Frankfurt. Mm. It was a basketball arena. And then just before we went on stage, they said, um, please don't mess anything up because uh, they're recording it live for German TV. And so... So that's raising the stakes. Just ra- raise the stakes a little bit. And, and this you is- sound like you're quite calm, generally speaking. You <laughs> need to be under those circumstances. Is that right? Yeah. I th- I, during the MBA process... I figured out one of the personal development things is that's become reality to me is that I was definitely prepared for that event. Hmm. So I had, I had a resilience. I had self-awareness. I was mindful of the fact that I could deliver on, on, under pressure within those parameters. 
And so I, I was able to channel all that energy because obviously I was nervous as hell. But instead of being a shaking wreck, I used my 10,000 hours and Talib Peterson's uh, advice that he drilled into my head to always be prepared. I used all that to, to make sure that I could survive the gig. There's something which, about which you I being do. able to control your mind and your perception enough to know your nervousness. Yeah. Let it motor and power you rather than dominate you. Yeah. So there's something about being mindful that you talked about there that's really, really interesting and, and yeah. a huge degree of self-control. Yeah. Because not all drummers are known for self-control, are they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Figure Keith Moon, yeah. Look, I, I'm not always known for self-control, but at, at, at this particular juncture, it, it worked. So it hasn't worked every time. But so I'm picturing this. You're on the stage in Frankfurt in this basketball stadium, yeah. stadium with how many thousands of people? I think there were 15,000. Okay, your first gig with a new band that's yeah. legendary in South Africa and huge for you, right? Yeah. And now what happens? But it got better than that, though. The, the stakes got a bit better because uh, just before we got on stage, I looked to my right and uh, Madiba was sitting on a, on a stool <laughs> next to the, in the side stage. And it turned Come out... Come to listen to you. Yeah, he turned out he was in Frankfurt to deliver a speech. He was a keynote speaker at a dinner or something. And he delayed his, uh, his entrance there so that he could watch our first song and asked that the first song would be a Sibonanga, which, was, which is his uh, favorite song. It's a Zulu song, right? Uh, well, it, well, it's it's it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly yeah. yeah. Which means we don't we, we don't see him. We can't see him because the time Madiba was in jail. You weren't allowed to have any yeah. images of him, right? And and so Johnny wrote that song in the in the mm. in the in the heart of the state of emergency. I think in '86, mm. at a time where he felt that Mandela would have been the unifying presence to defuse lo a lot of what was because we were slipping into sort of low scale civil war here. And, and this song was unifying people. It became a rallying cry. Yeah. It was like a deep, deep meaning across cultures. Absolutely. to see change. It was banned here, but it became a rallying yeah. cry everywhere else. So that's a song that makes the hair on your back of your neck. Yeah. Yeah. Sit up when you hear it. And, yeah. and there you are about to play it for the first time with the band, and you see Madiba. That's normally the encore. So uh -huh. they said, okay, make that one right. In, let's put mm -hmm. the encore right in front, because that's what he asked. This is literally as we're going on stage. <laughs> and, and so... We went and played it, and then he came on and, and did his Madiba thing and then made a very famous speech about how music is so powerful for him, and then he asked us to play the song again. And that uh, clip from German TV went viral after he died. I've seen it. It's and extraordinary. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's got gazillions of views, and the first thing you see on that viral clip is me fidgeting, trying to get a Sibonanga to the front of my pack of music. For some reason, they zoomed up on me first, and I'm like a rabbit in the, head, in the headlights trying to change the pages in the dark. And then we play the song. And in a and moment, it, you were a lion, right? Because you got it right. On a huge stage. Mm. It was amazing. Anyway, the, the song and the gig turned out mm. great. How do you feel about that afterwards? That must have been mind-blowing. Yeah, it was, it was mind-blowing. I, uh, I had to have a, a pint or two of vice beer just to get myself <laughs> back to normality. <laughs> well, certainly was a rite of passage. After that, it must have seemed easy, right? Or yeah. easier, yeah. yeah. Never easy, that level of music. So that's how the Clegg career started. Mm. Uh, that was a two-week tour, and, and, and by the end of the tour, it went really well, and then I just never left. And uh, somewhere in the middle of that, you went to Berkeley, didn't you? Was that, uh, that was earlier. Earlier? Yeah. And you've got a really interesting story about this young South African guy with all the Americans. You know, right. What is that again? I, I remember you telling me once. It was really interesting. It was my perception when I, when I first landed at music school in L.A., where in my introductory week, I was surrounded by a lot of people that were very contrary to my culture in that all my fellow students, most of my fellow students were very 
forceful about their abilities and their place in the world, which I later learned is a very it's a powerful thing. It's a valid thing. Is that uh, an American? It's thing? an American. It's yeah, an American so, yeah. manner. Yeah, because there's so many of them, and and the, and the musical culture is so cutthroat that they naturally want to just jump to the head of the queue, whether they can deliver or not. So you get yourself noticed. Even you get yourself noticed whether you've got the, the wherewithal or not. So you, brilliance and musicianship is only part of it. It's the capacity to be there, perform, connect. And, absolutely. And the, the guts to be present, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So exercise in, in confidence and branding hmm. right there. After the first day, I almost left. I almost came back to South Africa. Why? Because I was just so intimidated. Everybody was so articulate and talked so big that I thought, okay, I'm, I'm in the wrong place. Uh, so you not, had a, a serious, serious I had, I had a case, case of, of nerves. Imposter syndrome. Yeah, sort of like my yeah. first three months at the NBA. <laughs> we'll talk about <laughs> that. I have to say that, you know, you've done extremely well on the NBA. You've been a bit of a star, haven't you? And I'm not at all surprised, but it's really interesting. Yeah, thank how you. It, from your background, how you mastered the NBA so well. But we'll come back to that. But what, yeah. what's the story about Berkeley again? So lots of very confident students name dropping at a at a mind melting rate around me so so they basically knew everybody knew all of my icons as personal friends that's what it sounded like to me Mm. and scared the hell out of me so long story short after my first three months of sitting in the back of the class i didn't run away I i stayed for three months, I was too scared to ever play in class or perform for fear of judgment. Hmm. It took me about three months to figure out that a lot of the biggest talkers couldn't actually deliver with the playing ability. So somewhere there's an allegory in that. Yeah. But anyway, we'll come back to that. <laughs> Not too difficult to find, I don't yeah. think. Okay, yeah. And a lot of guys were very, had a lot of technique but couldn't make music with the technique. Mm-hmm. Or they had huge motor skill and I could see that there was just a disconnect between having major motor skill ability, but no ability to put that into a musical environment, or just no ability. And, and the same with the guitar, a lot of shredders, exactly yeah. the same. Yeah, it's not music. Um, it's a gladiator sport, you know? That's right. So yeah. what is, so it's not music, you say. So clearly you had music. So let's get on with the story, because I think what's coming is something about your musicality, which is really important. What I discovered for myself was there was a small percentage of my quorum that I, that I started with that were really amazing musicians and I gravitated towards those people to, to try and elevate myself you know so that that um, you're as good as the five people around you mm. sort of uh, theory I, I naturally gravitated to the guys that were that I perceived as the best in the class I very quickly figured out that I could overcome my fear and also jump into the front of the class and try and get into an ensemble because the classes were so big as you walked into a class they'd have a list of 20 names to do a performance with yeah. some famous musician. And unless you got your, your name in the top 10, the class would run out of time before you, you'd be heard. So you were never getting to play with those guys. I'd never even get yeah. to the list, never, never right. mind putting my, so. getting my name right on the top. Mm. So, so in a short space of time, I was jumping for the list with the best of them, and I became good at that, invi- that survival environment of just survival of the fittest. And then I got to the point where I put my name down I think that this is the moral of the story. I, I put my name down, and then I'd figure out later what I had to do. I'd just say, yes, I'm going to do it. They'd say, who wants to play, blah, blah, blah. And, but before they'd even describe what the requirements were, I'd go and put my name down and then hope for the best. And nine out of ten times, I managed to stay afloat. One out of ten times, I probably failed. The moral of that w- was I had enough body of work behind me 
to keep myself afloat under extreme circumstances. And I think that translated into the Mandela story that I just told you. Mm. Came out of having developed self-confidence in that particular area. You know? And look at you developing your confidence as you go forward because that taught you lessons about stepping up. Yeah. We talked about imposter syndrome. I think it's very common. I was at a women leadership conference recently and yeah. several of the women were talking about the sense of an imposter syndrome. Many men I know who go into senior positions feel they're imposters for the early years and act out extraordinarily in senior positions to make it seem as if they are not. Right. But actually accepting that as a, as a normal feeling, which you just let, let go and nonetheless try and perform, push yourself forward yeah. and allow your skills to learn in the moment and continue to live up, fast tracks you into capability by yes. the sound of it and builds a deeper sense of confidence. So you've managed to ignore your fears and keep progressing. And it must have been the same, if I can jump forward a bit, for when you started coming to do the MBA. Yeah. Because I remember we were talking about it and I knew instantly when I met you that this was something you could do because I've been doing this for some time and I can recognize that sort of mind and capability. But for you, it must have been different. Yeah, definitely. When I started the program, I had very little real understanding of, of what the meat and potatoes of the MBA program were. And did you feel confident to begin with? No, not at all. So again, it's a, yeah. another Mandela or... Totally the same thing. Drum Institute moment, yeah. Yeah. And the first day that I was here, I think if I'd started with a, something that I really enjoyed, like strategy or uh, finance, it would have been an easier kickoff for me. But the first module was processes and systems. It was so foreign to me that I... I really felt like I'd landed on Mars. And it took me the longest time just to figure out what the hell people were talking about. I've learned now that a lot of business uh, language it was littered with abbreviations mm. and, and um, sort of insider lingo that took me a while to decipher just that. Um, and it's just that. It's just lingo. It's, it's, mm. it's a shortcut to saying more complicated ideas. It's simply a matter of getting into it and yeah, learning it. Absolutely. And people who use that lingo without understanding, they're the ones who are... What's the polite word for bullshit? I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And if you're in a room full of musicians, they'll talk with a similar kind of insider l mm. lingo. It's a bullshit filter, mm. basically. And if you don't understand the lingo, the tribe that understand the lingo can very quickly see that you're not part of the tribe. Mm. Just there was a massive learning for me. I never thought about that in music. But mm. once I got to Henley and with the MBA program, I realized that this was just seeing the same thing from another context. Well, that's really interesting. So you're now doing an MBA, yeah. and you're now making parallels with being a drummer for a famous rock band yeah. and uh, learning in music and yeah. performing and gigging, yet you're seeing that these are the same human activities just wrapped up in different language in a different domain and maybe more specialized around business. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. More, more organized, more formalized, but with the same truths. Absolutely. But not alien at all. No. Not alien, and uh, the overriding factor here was that I was as, uh, if I wind back to when I was a teenager going into the townships in Port Elizabeth to learn to play music, I was so hungry for that knowledge. Coming to Hendley, I think I've had, I've had a equivalent hunger for this new set of skills. Or so this new so set that of drive takes you through all those instant obstacles and all the possibility of shame, humiliation, yeah. all the fantasies we have. Why are you different, Barry? Why, why are you able to do that? What do you think? Maybe I'm just not able to see the, uh, the obvious places I shouldn't be, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just, uh, uh, I'd say that my two pivotal paths that I've been on in my life, where I've had huge appetite for new learning, have been time and, and context driven, 
When I was young and when I was a teenager, I was driven to learn about music. The last five or six years, my, my appetite has been huge for something that I wasn't sure of what it was, what the appetite was aimed at. And I think when I first started speaking to you in Cape Town, mm. you probably picked up on the fact that I was, I was yearning for new skills and change, but I wasn't sure what direction this was going to take, and I wasn't sure what the skills that I needed were. But isn't it even more than that, Barry? Isn't it you've done something, you've got an expertise in a domain? Yeah. And part of that expertise is not just about doing music. But it must yeah. be about purpose. You must be doing music yeah. because it reflects the purpose. Yeah. And now you've got those capabilities, and, and now you can have more leverage over life. Yeah. You can do bigger things. You can make a bigger contribution. Is it that that's coming out and finding the skills and capability to do those bigger things that the MBA and other development will take you towards? Absolutely, yeah. I figured out that I can be tenacious if, I, if I'm passionate about something. Mm. And I can just drive towards that purpose. So what is that purpose? Let's, let's dig into your purpose a bit without trying to be too intrusive. But I yep. think it's absolutely fascinating. It's probably the key to who you are. My purpose has moved from one-dimensional achievement in the music sector mm. to now wanting to achieve in a bigger arena, be, make an impact on my environment and people around me, the importance of people and the importance of networks. Those are my driving factors right now. I'm driven by wanting to be, I guess, an agent of change. That's what I was thinking as you were talking. And I'm going back to that early story you told about in the townships, about your socialization into a different form yeah. of society. And it seems to me that defines you. I, mean, I was listening to a podcast by Elon Musk recently. And mm -hmm. the interesting thing about him was he looks at something and he doesn't really take much interest in the things that tells him he can't do that. Right. He wants to set a colony on Mars. He wants to build tubes under LA to get people to the airport quicker, whatever it is. Yeah. Tesla, the whole story. Yeah. Something about him that's almost relentlessly logical. Yes. And gets him to ignore his, his limitations. Yes. But he's driven by something. Yes. But you want to make a change. What's that change that you're seeing that you, with these skills, you might be part of a new evolution in your life? Interestingly, my management research challenge topic, so my thesis topic for the MBA, mm. is as follows. How to successfully export South African music talent to the USA and mitigate risks. But a small country can't do that on a big <laughs> scale, can it? So, so while I was doing the research for the proposal, just to backtrack, when I was at music school back in, in my Hollywood days, a third of my class were Swedes. And they were all paid by the, by the Swedish government and the private sector in Sweden to study music. And they were, they were encouraged to do this as long as they showed some ability. So when I was doing my research for the thesis proposal, I found out that Sweden is the third biggest exporter of music in the world. Sweden. Sweden. Third, so so that's they, a significant part of their economy. Huge. Wow. Huge part of their economy. When they saw what ABBA did for the GDP they realized that they needed to take Swedish music and specifically Swedish songwriting very seriously. The most prolific songwriters in the world in a pop sense right now are Swedes living in Hollywood. So Sweden is, is the third biggest exporter after the UK and after the USA. So the USA with a population of 350 million and upwards is in first place, the UK is second. Uh, what's the population of the UK? I'm not even sure. And Sweden's nine and a half million. So nine and a half million people are exporting more, more music than Japan or Germany. So building or, the creative economies. Yeah. Building exactly. songwriting music. So this is, could be the future of South Africa, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Because we have the talent, right? We have all the talent. I think we have the political goodwill. Mm. We just don't have the organization. We don't have the strategy. We don't have the organization. Right now, people like Dion Fuert, 
a rock band called Seether, Dave Matthews. These guys are all massive opportunity winners, mm. but they got to where they are in spite of the South African music industry, not because of it. So now imagine if we had, like Sweden, the industry propelling people in that direction. And it's like Sweden, because Sweden used to make money by cutting down trees and selling them. We, we make money by digging up gold and selling it. Yeah. So it's a factor-based thing, but they've turned to a creative economy, yeah. haven't they? And we could do that, because we, this is South Africa. It's creative to its core. The music industry right now is, is life performance-driven, mm. and South Africa's major musical resource is life performance. Mm. So we're perfectly aligned with that. So to your point, yes, it's a massive opportunity. Well, I've got a sense that with your drive and with your capacity to push through fear and do what you think is impossible at one time and realize it was possible, that you're going to be leader in this, Barry. Well, we'll watch the space. We'll have a chat again in a year or two. And on your arm is a very elegant tattoo that says Katya. Yeah. <laughs> your daughter, right? Yeah. How old? Eleven. Eleven. Yeah. So is that something that's driving you to do this? Yeah. A sense of legacy, creating a better society for her. For her and her age mates, absolutely. So almost fiercely stepping up to a challenge yeah. to make a better society for her via music and yeah. what music does to people. And all the positive attributes. But I also think it's not just a, I don't think it's a labor of love. I think it, I think it could turn out into, you know, to, to be a, a massively good return on investment. I don't think it's just a, throwing things out there for the for the hell of it I, I think that we have the talent I think the opportunity is not being exploited at all here I don't think there's enough government help mm. I think a blended strategy between private and government is possible and I'm optimistic about the future of, of South Africa over the next five to ten years and I think the time is absolutely right to put the, the beginnings of the strategy together to ensure that the artists out of this country don't succeed in spite of the, lo the local industry. And now you're sounding like a senior businessman, <laughs> a statesman. Sorry. The transition from that young boy playing drums in a township to what you're talking about yeah. now. You're going to make a difference. I can yeah. feel it. And yeah, your I, choice of the MBA has helped you on that, but many other things will as well. The MBA has been a, a massive game changer. It's been the turning point for me. I, I've had the purpose and the passion. The MBA has just put it into a, an achievable goal. And I know that you want to carry on from having done the MBA. You want to go back, you want to teach on MBAs. You want to build businesses yes. as well. And you're very welcome to come and teach on the MBA as well. Thank and, you. And other places I know you're going to do. This and sounds like a career that's really going somewhere, Barry. Thanks, John. I feel like I'm on the, the early stages of a, of a very exciting new chapter. So I'm, I'm having the same, which is a human condition. I'm having, I'm having the, the mixed emotions of, of huge excitement and fear of the unknown. But the only good things I've ever done, the only really remarkable things that I've done in my life have been when I've been scared. I've never done anything where I, where I haven't been. And so the only time I've ever got anywhere is where I've been scared, want to run away, no, wait a minute, don't run away, go back and give it, you know, give it all. So that's my reality, and that's definitely what's going on now. I'm going to finish on that because <laughs> that's just such a fantastic statement. Barry Fansale, child prodigy, musician, artist, Drummer for the Johnny Clegg Bang and many other bands now transitioning via the NBA to make a bigger difference on society. If I was a venture capitalist, I'd invest in you. Thank you very <laughs> much for being here. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Henley Business Radio. Henley Business School, building the people who build the businesses that build Africa.